Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! Need my sister and my daughter! Rosebud. What's in the box? Hello, and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Marissa Martinelli, an assistant editor here at Slate, and today we're spoiling Fleabag, which stars Phoebe Waller-Bridge as a troubled, sex-loving, fourth-wall-breaking woman running a cafe in London. While the first season of the BBC show was dominated by the mystery of what happened to Fleabag's friend and business partner, Boo, the second season, which debuted on Amazon just this month, further explores her relationship with her family as her father and her godmother prepare to get married, and with the priest who will be performing the ceremony, played by Andrew Scott. I'm joined by two of my favorite staff writers here at Slate. In the studio, we have Heather Schwedell. Hi, Heather. Hi, Marissa. And joining us via Skype is the incomparable Ingu Kang. Hi, Ingu. Hello, hello. (laughs) So this show began as a monologue at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe uh, by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is the star and also the creator. And I was reading a review in The Independent from that time that said, and I quote, I doubt if this material will spin off into a long-running radio or television series. I mean, that's not a ringing endorsement of the monologue, but it's also true in a way. It did become a television series, but not a long-running television series. There are two seasons, and the last season, Phoebe Waller-Ridge has been adamant, is the last season. There will be no more Fleabag. I don't think she's been that adamant from what I was reading. I I feel like she gave a few quotes that were like, maybe one day if I think of something. Oh, really? But, you know, nothing ends anymore, so that's to be expected. That would be really disappointing because I felt like this second season ended on a really strong note and had a lot of closure. So does that mean you do not want a third season? I do not want a third season. I would take a third season in a few years if there's a um, a new chapter, but I do like where it ended. I would absolutely take a third season if only because I cannot get enough of this Olivia Coleman evil, evil stepmother character. Um, I just need more of that in my life. Um, <laughs> yeah, and um, what a coup for this show that um, Olivia Coleman was in it last season and I had no idea who she was and now she's this Oscar winner. Like, not a coup really because I guess proving their great taste, but um, it's such a treat to see her now knowing her from the favorite and just her glorious Oscar season. Wow, someone has not watched Broadchurch. No, I haven't. Yeah, you got me. (laughs) On which Phoebe Waller-Bridge also appeared. Oh, really? Yeah, she had a, a little, she was a character, Abby. Uh, on Broadchurch. Uh, yeah, Olivia Coleman really shines in this role. And her name, like many of the characters on Fleabag, is just she doesn't have any like name. godmother, <laughs> um, including Fleabag herself. But even just like her dad, the priest of this season, who is just 
the priest, uh, more commonly known to people who watch the show as the hot priest, which is, we'll probably dig into that debate. Um, one character who does have a name is her sister, Claire. Um, and a lot of this season, as was the case last season, is about their relationship, especially as their father and godmother are getting married. Yes. So we start the season that uh, Claire and Fleabag haven't talked to each other in a year since the end of last season when uh, Claire's horrible husband, Martin, came on to Fleabag, but then he spun it around and said, no, she came on to me and they just haven't talked for a year. Um, So now they're at a dinner for their father and the godmother. And also a priest is there because he's going to be marrying them. So, um, and that's where the entire first episode takes place um, at that dinner. I love that this entire first episode takes place at this dinner. You have this like recurring bit where like this very annoying waitress keeps popping up and like offering services that nobody wants. And it introduces everyone, all the characters who are relevant to the season, like in this one, um, in this like one space where they are sort of like forced to interact. And you can really easily see like what is like everybody's relationship to one another and sort of like who needs to escape from the table and like for what reason. Also, one of the things I love about the show which is like a very well-written show, is that uh, Fleabag and Claire's dad is like really inarticulate. And so I feel like the show writes this inarticulateness really well. So like they have this like family gathering and he's like, so happy about this family gangbang. And Fleabag <laughs> is like, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, it does really go perfectly with the godmother character because you know, he's all too happy to have someone come in and just walk all over him and take control of everything because her character says something about his character, I think. Well, I mean, the other thing about a dinner or like a dinner party or whatever, like this type of situation where you have a group dinner is that there's always like this uh, subtle jockeying for power, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's usually one person who is trying to take control of the dinner and like make it go in the direction that they want it to. And it's such a perfect uh, microcosm of how the godmother is sort of like trying to step in into this family and, and basically take it over. And essentially Fleabag and her sister are too much at odds right now in order to like band together to make her feel shitty, which is what <laughs> they usually like to do. Yeah, and is this the dinner where Martin asks um, Fleabag, you know, what are you going to do this time or what performance are you going to do? Or maybe that was later. I think that was later, but I do love the fact that when the um, episode opens, you basically see Fleabag in the bathroom from behind, and she just looks like she's, like, washing her face or something. It's clearly a fancy bathroom, so we know it's, like, a restaurant bathroom. And basically, she turns around to the camera, and you see that, like, her face is just covered in blood. And essentially, she is cleaning up her bloody nose and then sort of turns to the camera in the way that she always turns to the camera to, like, say some clever winking thing. And she says, this is a love story. 
and then we like cut to the title credits. But I did really like the fact that you have this promise of uh, violence that is going to come at the end of the dinner. And we get like this like very different instance of blood before um, like oh, the you're right. punch that goes into her face where Claire, the sister, goes to the bathroom and Fleabag is in there with her and Claire is like really angry. And Fleabag thinks, oh, like, did you, like, are you having your period? And it turns out Claire has had a miscarriage, but she doesn't want her husband to know that she had a miscarriage. And so Fleabag goes back to the table and says, I had a miscarriage because she gets really fed up with sort of like the inane chatter at the dinner. It's interesting, too, that up until that point, Fleabag is being uncharacteristically quiet, which I actually didn't notice until one of the other characters mentioned it because she had been making her little asides to the camera. And I kind of forgot in the intimacy of the scene that even though we're privy to those asides, not all of the other characters are. So when she does come back to the table and say that she has had a miscarriage, it's even more dramatic and shocking. And I think um, it's interesting how Claire, her way of dealing with problems is, I had a miscarriage, but I'm so stubborn and I don't want anyone to know about it and don't take me to the hospital <laughs> um, and don't help me in any way. And it's also funny how uh, Fleabag kind of steals this from her because there are, th- there are things that happen to, like... There could be a real object that one person can say, oh, no, the gun was mine. But they somehow managed to do that over a thing like it wasn't her miscarriage. It was the other ones. And she can't, you know, grab the blood and be and say this it came out of me. That's gross. Whatever. <laughs> but like it was just so funny how the, the show managed to to switch it up on a thing that one character can't physically steal from another. She's not taking it selfishly, though. I mean, she's very much, she wants her sister to go to the hospital, but she can't tell the table, my sister just had a miscarriage. Yeah. There's, like, a point where, like, when they're still in the bathroom, I had to write down this line because it was so good and so, like, indicative of their sisterly relationship, where Claire is, like, looking at Fleabag, who is trying to help her. And she says, just get your hands off my miscarriage. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. And then obviously, well, not obviously, but that's part of what makes Fleabag take it because she wants to shove it back in her face <laughs> um, in a, in a I way. Think, I don't think she's trying to shove it back in her face. I think she's trying to get her sister to go to the hospital to like understand the gravity of the situation. And when people are like, why are you making such a big fuss? Then she's like trying to sort of clue people in onto like the gravity of the situation at hand, but like it just comes out completely the wrong way. Yeah, I think she's doing both. And I mean, this scene kind of sets up the rest of the season, and Martin already has these ideas about, you know, Fleabag as an attention hog and this, that, and the other thing. But during the scene where they think Fleabag had the miscarriage, Martin makes a tossed off comment of like, fish out of the bowl like because she couldn't keep the pregnancy it was a sign that you know the fetus did not want to be raised by her which is an awful awful thing to say but is doubly awful because we know that it's actually his wife who had the miscarriage yep (laughs) and he he finds ways to 
repeat it and make it worse or just kind of keep pounding on that point like and it it gets progressively worse um but I think it's repeat comments is one of the reasons why Fleabag sort of like hits her limit and mm-hmm. decides to punch her brother-in-law in the face yes <laughs> and then when she goes off for a second punch to the face he punches her back in the middle of this restaurant and that's how she ends up with this bloody nose well, that's the thing about Martin. Like, what other um, TV character that we hate would actually punch back at that moment? Um, a, both a woman and, and his sister-in-law. But Martin goes there. <laughs> well, there's someone else at this dinner table. Oh, yeah, Bearing witness <laughs> to all of these family interactions. And that is the priest, uh, Andrew Scott's priest, who turns out to be actually probably one of the most important characters in the series for someone who comes in in season two. He's he's a priest, but he's like a cool priest. <laughs> he drinks, he swears, uh, he's generally charming, and at the end of the episode, Fleabag and Claire both are like, oh, he's so hot. Such a hot <laughs> priest. Uh, and he's sort of taken off online. People are calling him the hot priest. Heather. He was definitely a hot priest. Sorry. Wow, you just jumped the gun. I was about to ask Heather. Sorry, I couldn't wait. <laughs> Ingu, explain explain the hotness to me. I mean, Andrew Scott is not a bad-looking guy, but isn't it more his relationship to Fleabag that's hot than the character himself? I mean... Hotness means something. Wow, okay. So we probably, most people uh, probably know Andrew Scott best for playing uh, Moriarty on the BBC version of Sherlock where he's sort of in this, like, homoerotic detente with Benedict Cumberbatch's uh, Sherlock. Um, in any case, he I always, always found him extremely grating in that role because he seems like he knows too much about what's going on. And basically, um, he really, like, draws it back here. And I think what I really found hot about him is that he absolutely knows how much Fleabag wants to bag him. (laughs) And so he is constantly sort of like flirting with her, even though he knows he's not supposed to. And then like pulling back and then flirting with her and then pulling back. And part of it is because he's new in town. And so he sort of needs to reach out to other people in order to not feel so lonely. But I think... Um, I was going to say, and in future episodes, the that Fleabag had this miscarriage gives him an excuse to sort of reach out to her and comfort her, and, and that progresses their relationship as well. And I think part of it is that, like, he's a priest. He, like, legitimately wants to help this person who definitely seems very broken and that he has a lot in common with. Um, and so, like, part of it is just, He's like this like very strange uh, combination of like the tenderness that you would want from like a guy like from like a legitimate good guy and then also sort of like the cocky arrogance of like a guy who knows that like this woman like the only thing she wants in the world right now is to sleep with him and like basically him constantly acknowledging that to her. And saying, like, I know you want this, but I don't think so. Like, (laughs) that push and play, I felt, like, was really sexy. 
I think also, though, he's struggling on a more fundamental level than just teasing and flirting with her. Like, he's not just basking the attention. They have a very real connection. And in one of the most crucial scenes is before that they get physical and have any kind of relationship is when he actually sees her asides into the camera, which up until now had just been sort of a narration device, but now is framed in a totally new context when he asks her, you know, where did you go? And at one point, she looks into the camera and he sort of screams and looks into the camera. It's like, ah, what are um, you doing? I, I think we should talk about that, but I think we should go back to the hotness question. because I, <laughs> I feel like you had more to say and I have more to say. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to talk about the narrative, but okay. No, 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 not important. Um, so I do not think he is hot. I get it, but I, I like his character, but, uh, and I like how he's a real person, um, and I, you know, he has a great smile. He has like a Mark Ruffalo thing, but it, I can't separate it from like, he like has this huge forehead and a receding hairline. Like he, he's a good looking guy, but he didn't become hot to me. And also like. Important the, interjection from our producer, Danielle Hewitt, hot priest is hot. So it's <laughs> two to two. Um, oh, so you're on my team. Okay. <laughs> so, and also, I mean, to me, um, a priest is just inherently not hot. Like they're like I'm. I'm not Catholic. To me, that that's that. It's a little weird, and like I I have trouble getting past that. But I I do think my favorite thing about him. I didn't really see the cockiness at all. And now that Ingu points it out, um, I'm like, oh maybe. Um, but I just like how he understood her, and um, and. You know, we'll we'll get back to the narrative way later, but I they did have a real connection. Um, so, but your thoughts, Marissa? My thoughts are, there are some scenes that are incredibly hot between them. Uh, everyone talks about the confessional scene in the church when Fleabag, who's a devout atheist, steps into the confessional and the priest tells her to kneel, and everyone apparently swooned at this. Hates it. <laughs> Um, which is it was fine. So good. There's definitely like a a very kinky element to their relationship. That's what I hate. <laughs> and in fact, I was going to say that the scene I thought was hot came right before that, when Fleabag sort of walks into his priestly quarters. That's not the word. I'm a bad Catholic. <laughs> and he turns around and she says something, you know, like, "What's going on, Father?" And he says, you know, "Oh, saying Father like it doesn't just turn you on to call me that." There's definitely like a very kinky BDSM thing going on. I preferred their their cute scenes together when he understood her or like hot, like their their kiss in the last episode, I thought was great. Um, the up against the wall. Kiss. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that like kinky Catholic schoolgirl thing though, you have to be into that in some way. But and- crucially, <laughs> she it's not her. She's not the element in this that makes it kinky it's him and the fact that he can't have sex it's definitely a fascinating dynamic i don't think it's like a i mean like i think one of the things i like about their dynamic is that it's she's not like a kinky catholic schoolgirl. she's a devout atheist who finds a lot of like what he does really kind of like iffy where she says things like oh you just want me to tell you all your secrets so you can like better control me (laughs) and you know what like 
that's not a completely off the mark like criticism of how the Catholic Church works. But then she also says that that's something that on some level she secretly wants because it seems easier. I mean, that's what's so amazing about that confessional scene is that she gets on her knees and much as in the first season, she and her sister go to this feminist lecture and the speaker asks, you know, would you trade, I think it was five years of your life for the perfect body. And she and her sister are the only ones who (laughs) raise their hands and they're like, oh no, we're bad feminists. I mean, in much the same way, her getting on her knees and saying, I want to let go and I want to be told how to dress and how to act and where to go. Like to a man, as someone who does not believe in God, there's like a dual, like her role as a woman and her role as a person seeking meaning kind of meet there. Especially um, because then that's exactly what happens is that he tells her to kneel. I, I'm just going to add, do you guys think there's any way in, well, obviously there's some way, but that he's inappropriate or reckless. I mean, I I also have trouble seeing him as as like the perfect guy because I think one thing that's admirable about him or that what you might find cute is he's like so nice but that he would never have sex or transgress with But this is um, exactly what I love about this character and mm-hmm. their dynamic because Fleabag is a person who has all of this like unresolved grief and she doesn't know how to channel it except through sex. But every time she gets into a sexual relationship because she doesn't sort of like think things through about what the consequences would be, she ends up sort of like fucking her life over even more. And I, he seems to be as like the son of alcoholics. He is absolutely someone who probably also had like, and so I think what we know about his family history is that he has a brother who is a pedophile uh, and like a truck driver and his parents were alcoholics. And so you get the feeling that he probably also had an extremely uh, like unstable life. Well, he says as much too. Um, He says, you know, before he was a priest, he had some, some years where I I think he intimates that he also had like a a problem with sex where he like overdid it and was an addict. Um, And so what's really great about like what he, like the piece that he has come to is that he has decided like, I'm going to take on this particular structure for myself and I'm just going to sort of like follow these structures so that I can have some peace in my life. And you definitely get the sense that like that's where Fleabag is herself headed toward not like a Catholic whatever but just sort of like any kind of structure for herself and 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 so you see this thing of like him trying to pull her into like more structure and her trying to pull him back into instability and basically at least like by the time that like she seduces him successfully. She has sort of like pulled him into like her side of the stability axis. And so like when they get together, it's a conquest for her. But like you also feel incredibly sad for him, which I thought was like a really great element of this story. Because every time, like the more he gets entangled with her, he's sort of like seeping back into this like path that he worked so hard to escape. Well, one thing I thought was interesting about the confessional scene is that Fleabag also goes to a therapist 
in this season. Her dad gets her a voucher to go to therapy as a present, uh, which is sort of embarrassingly revealed during the dinner party. And she does go out of a sense of obligation. No, she goes because she wanted to exchange the voucher for money. Well, she says that, but she also kind of wants to go. Right. I I took it as that sort of being her justification for actually Mm -hmm. going because she didn't want to go. But right, that is the excuse that she gives that she wants to exchange it for money, which she doesn't bring up until late enough in the session that it's not going to happen. But it's interesting to me just the fact that she goes to therapy and she also goes into a confessional because the two things seem she's skeptical of both going to the therapist and of religion, but she actually has some unexpected revelations in both scenes. And yet it's the confessional scene that ultimately she seemed more to have more of a an emotional investment in. And I think that speaks to her link between sex and love and how she's been trying to fill the void with sex because she does have a sexual dynamic with the priest that she doesn't have with this therapist who tells her, you know, by your own admission, you have no friends and is very blunt with her. Oh, and it's funny um, to to talk about our fourth wall thing. When the therapist says to her, you have no friends, she looks at the camera and it's like, we are her friends. Right. We're also in a lot of ways like her therapist. That's where she talks about her candid thoughts and innermost feelings. Mm-hmm. I'm going to push back on that, actually, because I feel like even though we are more privy to her thoughts, um, when she's turning to the camera, she's usually making a face or she's making a joke. And, like, we're supposed to be able to, like, see through it. But I think one of the things I like the most about the season is that it really got into, like, how much is her sense of humor, this, like, detachment device where she could sort of, like, make these neat stories and, like, entertaining situations out of the parts of her life that she doesn't like as a way of not dealing with what's at hand. And it was, like, one of the reasons why her relationship with the priest who was able to listen to her asides to the fourth wall is so interesting is that you get the sense that, like, he can maybe sort of perceive what she's saying because he has a very similar job of like also sort of having to ingratiate himself through like jokes or whatever to his congregation. And so they both have this need to constantly, I don't don't think the word is like entertain, but sort of like keep involved um, like an audience. It's just that like in his case, it's a real audience. And in her case, she's just kind of like using it to not really engage with other people. Yeah. And we don't have a sense of what it looks like in real life when she goes or I don't when she goes into those um moments where where the the priest says, oh, you disappeared for a second. Where did you go? That implied to me that to him it looked a little different and she wasn't actually like turning around and talking to the camera. But then when he did an impression of her, he turned around and and looked at the camera. Right. I don't know how literally we're meant to take that. I I just wanted, and I also wanted to say to Marissa, who I know watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, did that remind you at all of when Paula... And um, Rebecca were talking about um, the musicals in her head. 
end. And Rebecca yeah. zones out. Yeah, yeah I did think about that. to the musical. Yeah. And at, at long last, Paula says, where do you go when you do that? I also thought that same thing. Um, another show about a sexually adventurous, troubled woman who often breaks the fourth wall. Crazy ex-girlfriend. Um, yeah, it's interesting, Ingu. I don't disagree with your interpretation of who we as the audience are, but I think I always thought of us more as like a stand-in for Boo, who we find out how she dies in the first season. And so I guess maybe I projected, maybe I have to go back and watch. I guess I interpreted it as more of an intimate relationship than sort of a humorous coping mechanism. Yeah, it's um I think it's one of those things where there there is no literal answer. So, um it, you know, I didn't really even picture there being a camera there until Spoiler alert, when they actually have sex and she and um, Fleabag like pushes a camera away, like was that the first time we saw an actual camera? And so I I think there's a lot of like zone to kind of imagine what literally she's seeing and other people are seeing and we're seeing. I love that scene where she and the priest finally have sex after openly stating we're going to have sex, aren't we? (laughs) And she does push the camera away, and for once, we're not privy to what's happening, especially because, I mean, throughout the show, we've seen her have sex with plenty of men, and she always turns to the camera during to make little comments. Um, But this season especially, she has a lawyer because Martin, her brother-in-law, is... Suing her or considering suing her, it sounds like he never Again, actually only Martin would, would do that. Right. <laughs> and she has this lawyer who, I think they call him at one point like a hot misogynist, and he's played by... He was definitely not hot, by the way. Wow. Strong <laughs> words from Heather. I thought he was he was good looking. Our hotness He was standards. not hot. He All was right. not too much of a car salesman lawyer. Right. It's, I mean, he was physically good looking, but he was... Super confident in a way that did not come off as like cocky sexiness and was more uh, self-absorption. But anyway, this actor is Raymond Freeran. And I mention it because I think, first of all, he's really, really funny. But also he's been on Coronation Street, which is a show my mom watches. uh, And it's a very popular, long-running UK soap opera. Um, So I probably will have lure her into (laughs) Fleabag by dropping his name. Um, but anyway, they have sex, and Fleabag turns to the camera, and he's, like, actually good, which is a rare occasion in yeah, her life. and she had turned to the camera previously when he said something implying he was good at sex. She had said, you know, yeah, right, essentially. So then when you see her say, oh, this actually is good, I almost thought she must be joking. <laughs> and and later she says he gave her nine orgasms. Um, (laughs) just like a fun, I mean, this season I felt like in some ways was more serious than the first season, but I thought that was, that really captured some of the fun of the first season for me. And it was also a regular lawyer guy who gives ladies nine orgasms in one night. And then when he comes over at one point and she needs to get rid of him, she's like, you're the best I ever had. Get out. (laughs) And I was like, really? Can that be true? But it was also funny when, um, Fleabag was trying to guess what his relationship with, um, her sister Claire was because Claire came to the office visit and Claire had previously known him. And she kept saying, like, um, they've definitely done it. Wait, have they? Are they going to? <laughs> and it kind of shows how she can't actually pin Claire down. 
she's hard to pin down. But she's always kind of been like that about Claire, where she'll make a, a very knowing aside and then Claire will do the opposite. And she'll have to sort of follow up with a look like, oh, I didn't know as well as I thought I did. Claire's allegiances and journey are so strange and unpredictable in a fun way. The end of last season, we thought she was going to leave Martin. And then Martin managed to spin the encounter that he had with Fleabag. I don't even know if he managed to spin as much as just Claire is not the kind of person to leave her husband. Well, She's we, the kind of person who see, thrives on being put upon. Yeah, but we see this season that she never believed Martin. She just mm. decided to accept it for the time being, which kind of makes sense. But yes, she does. And thriving on being put upon, it's like when she has that that party where she wants everything to go wrong because she, yeah, she wants to control everything and fix everything. Right. She got her flashy new promotion She's in Finland a lot. She has a colleague. Is he hot? Is the colleague hot? No. <laughs> Sorry. His name is Claire. I His think we're all Claire. on the same page yeah. for that one. Sorry. No. <laughs> um, yeah, but she's still clinging to this other life and her husband. And uh, Martin is a great character. He's a horrible guy, but he's a great character because he gives this plaintive speech uh, in the last episode at the wedding of Fleabag and Claire's dad and their godmother, where he makes a case for her not leaving. And he says, you know, until you get down on your knees and beg me, I'm not going anywhere. And it's very satisfying to see Claire finally get down on her knees. But I he also, couldn't believe that she did that. I couldn't I thought either. she was not going to do it. Go on. But I also loved some of his lines. Like, me he's too. an alcoholic, and he says, just like everyone else in this fucking country, because yeah. he's an American living <laughs> in the UK. And... He said, what did he say that I liked? Um, That he makes her laugh. I mean, he had some good points. He's like, yeah, I'm a douche, but but like you're breaking my heart here. I thought you loved me. He made a case for himself in the sense that I was almost ready to forgive him and I couldn't believe not forgive him, but take him back. I think the line was, I'm a douche, but I make you laugh. And I actually thought that was like a really smart revision on the show's part because I feel like like in the 80s and 90s, we had so many romantic comedies where like the guy was like significantly more ugly than the woman. Mm-hmm. But it was always like, well, like I'm funny. So it makes up for like all of my other qualities, not always just related to uh, the guy's appearance. And basically, Claire sort of says, like, it's really not enough that, like, you make me laugh. And I thought, like, coming from, like, the show being written by a woman who was, like, also funny, just sort of being like, oh, did you think that this, like, one quality that you had was, like, enough to sustain a relationship? Because it is obvious And also this one speech you made revealing your emotions that and that you do have a heart. But at the same time, yeah. it's such a great glimpse into how he sees himself. Mm-hmm. Like, he sees himself as a douche. <laughs> or at least is self-aware enough to include that as part of his appeal for her to stay with him. Mm-hmm. He's just a fascinating character. One of the reasons I don't understand that the show keeps pointing to for why she doesn't leave is his weird 
son. Yes, and we get to meet the weird son this season. I don't He's did so we see strange. him? But he hates Martin too, so we automatically love him. Right. <laughs> he has very little character development beyond that he's constantly asking where Claire is. <laughs> and he tells Fleabag, um, tell Claire to leave my dad or <laughs> Yeah. Which is wild considering most of what we know about him is that he wants to get in the bath with Claire. And I didn't expect He's older than I thought he would be, so that adds another weird level to it. I thought this kid was like 11, but he's like a teenager. (laughs) I think one of the things I found the most fascinating um, about this season is that uh, Fleabag is doing well at her work. Like, her cafe is thriving, Mm -hmm. and she gets this catering job. And essentially, no one in her family can believe that she is actually good at her job. Not even Mm -hmm. Fleabag is like like 100% uh, convinced that she's good at her job. But essentially, uh, Claire gets, Claire has to like throw this office party in order to, I think the award is something like best businesswoman of the year or something. And basically, Claire hires a flea bag to cater the party. And then we meet, I think, like the shows like best one episode character who is played by Kristen Scott Thomas. Belinda. Um, Love Belinda. And basically I don't even know like how this whole relationship works. It's so nuts. Basically like so there's like a statue that Fleabag had stolen from her stepmom. And essentially when Fleabag arrives at the office party she immediately breaks (laughs) the trophy that like was supposed to go to Chris Scott Thomas and so essentially she ends up giving instead of the uh, trophy this like bust that's just like a bust of a woman with no head and like very protuberant boobs (laughs) and so for like the best businesswoman award that is like the trophy that like she gives Kristen Scott Thomas and then essentially she needs to go get the statue back from her at the end of the ceremony and so she follows Kristen Scott Thomas and it's sort of like, by the way, your statue, like, I need it back. <laughs> and they end up going to a bar and sort of talking. And I thought this was, like, very interesting because um, a lot of it is sort of about, like, aging and how women sort of come into themselves. And one thing that we don't really have in the show is a genial older female presence because Fleabag and Claire's mother has died and Olivia Coleman's godmother is like an evil person and so you finally get in the show like a older woman who is like a pretty cool person and then of course Fleabag when confronted with sort of this like maternal figure who is like telling her by the way like like when you get to like your 50s and you get like menopause life actually is like great and all of like the bodily pain that you were living with uh just sort of like disappears uh and basically Fleabag's first impulse is to kiss her 
because she doesn't know like whether she wants to have sex with this woman or sort of like have her cradle her or just like respect her from afar. This woman does bad boundaries, which is sort of one of the main points of the show. But I did want to like bring Kristen Scott Thomas into this. She yeah. also combines sort of a lot of thematic elements in Fleabag's life. Like she's a mother figure, but also Fleabag's first instinct is to kiss her because that's how Fleabag processes a lot is through sex. Um, her speech was interesting. I don't know that we should necessarily take it as like Phoebe Waller-Bridge's interpretation of things necessarily. I saw it more as like this character's outlook because she says some things like women have pain built into them and it's like the physical destiny of women to experience pain uh, whereas men have to like find reasons to be in pain like they create war and they create God so that they can feel guilt. Um, and it didn't necessarily ring true for me for the show as a whole, but it felt very real for this character. Heather, what do you think? Yeah, I think now that you say that, that makes sense. I think in in the moment, um, Fleabag obviously finds her very seductive. Uh, but um, Kristen Scott Thomas just shuts down the kiss, which I thought was great. Um, what I was going to say is, is that scene seemed to me just of a piece with how Fleabag has grown up a little bit since last season. She stopped some of her worst habits. Her cafe is doing better. And it was just more reassurance that it's go- going to be okay for her. I'm glad <laughs> we did not go without talking about Kristen Scott Thomas because yes. that's, a, that's a really solid little monologue that she has. Uh-huh. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So things sort of like come together at the end with this wedding uh, between Fleabag's dad and Fleabag's godmother, who I have to say, like one of the things I really, truly love about this character is that she always says something utterly reasonable. And then like she always has to have like one little tiny remark at the end that like completely undoes everything like all of the goodwill you had like given her do you think Fleabag and Claire's dad actually likes her I I wasn't sure where to come down on that because so he's in the attic at the end and Fleabag is totally ready to shut shut the whole wedding down and get him out of there but he actually wants to get married what did you guys make of that right he's physically stuck in the attic he's not skipping out on the wedding as you would sort of assume from these things and how wedding tropes go yeah what's remarkable about the wedding is that nothing goes wrong oh right <laughs> oh and the the priest had tried to pull out as it were <laughs> of the wedding too because it, it just got really uncomfortable but you know he's back and he's doing the wedding and and you're right Yeah, I thought that was interesting because I think we're sort of primed to just expect someone to object and it's funny that uh, the godmother before the wedding, in uh, to Ingu's point, who she is wholly reasonable, but also 
she also just needles people unnecessarily. She says, no more miscarriages <laughs> to Fleabag before the ceremony, which is, like, awful. But at the same time, is it really so crazy to expect Fleabag to do something to interrupt, you know, her special day? I mean, not really, given the history I mean, between I the think two. One of the, one of the things that she says is that, you know, like, I know that you care for your father, but I also care for your father. And you know what? Your father's going to get older. So do you want to take care of your father or do you want me to take care of your father? And so she, like, really appeals to Fleabag's sense of, I don't know, self-preservation, I guess. And then Fleabag is sort of, like, coming around to her side and, like, being more okay with the wedding. And then basically Fleabag gifts her back the statue that she had stolen from her godmother, which is like the, like essentially like the headless torso that she had like given to Kirsten Scott Thomas. And then the godmother looks at the statue and says like, oh, I always thought it was so weird that you stole this statue out of like all of my other artwork because I actually based it off of your mom and now I'm so happy to have her back in my house. And, like, with this, like, really, like, possessive, like, gross way of just, like, being a stepmom in, like, the very worst way possible. But also nice in a weird way because Fleabag picked the one that was her mom. <laughs> right. I yeah, saw that as a much nicer her, gesture. Like but she gave her mom no head. I mean, given what we've seen of well, the godmother's art, that's not shocking. She in and, and stole the her husband too that's weird but also an act of love you know I don't know at the end of the episode you see Fleabag who is like alone again and she has like stolen back the statue so I think it was meant to be like a terrible line I also want to go back to one other piece of her art that I loved she has to paint a portrait of Claire and Fleabag I forget how that comes up exactly does anyone really have to paint a portrait, right? For like for a wedding present or something. So she's going to do that, and Fleabag and Claire are like, "Oh, great! We don't want to spend time together." And then the portrait she chooses to make is Claire facing forward and Fleabag only from behind. Like so rude, and she just has to sit there for hours modeling it, but she isn't drying her face. Like that was such a crazy nag, but I I like how they they played out um, her character in her artwork. Is it rude or is it kind of a commentary on their relationship? I feel like the godmother is kind of a genius. Um, no, it's interesting because I also noticed that uh, Claire and Fleabag often sit next to each other. I don't know if they sit next to each other more than most people, but I just noticed it more, I think, because of the portrait. Um, like there's the great scene where... Claire gets a haircut and the two of them are in the park and Claire's haircut is absolutely <laughs> it it is so shocking to see on that character. Uh it's very chic and short and asymmetrical. It's, not chic. it's pretty Take chic. That back. <laughs> it grew on me. The first time you see her with it, it's it, kind of it's a sight awful. gag. Yeah. And it's awful and everyone knows it's awful. And they they storm down to the hairdresser to berate him. And he pulls the picture that Claire brought out of the garbage, and it's the exact same haircut. It's literally what she wanted. It's just that seeing it on her, as opposed to on some glamorous model, is is a different experience. 
Right. Do you guys remember like that period of the internet where people would put like hollowed out halves of watermelons on their cat's heads? And so yeah. it looked like a bob. <laughs> like yeah. if you did an asymmetrical version of that, that's exactly what that haircut looked like. It is a bad haircut. You are wrong to believe it is a chic haircut. But I did love the fact that when... But it's high Fleabag fashion, realized, okay? You. When Fleabag realizes she really needs to make her sister feel better about this terrible haircut, she tells her sister, it's French. And immediately clears like, okay, like I can just tell myself it's French and then I can move on with my life. But uh, then also it turns out that like the Finnish coworker that she's in love with also ends up loving the haircut, so she just sort of accepts it. Uh, did you did you think that at the wedding she was going to run to the airport after all that to do about how running to the airport is a ridiculous trope in real life because there's security and weights and things like that? I am glad that they didn't show it, but I'm, I'm also glad that she went. But yeah, we didn't need to see that. We've all seen that before. <laughs> they spent that she's so well deconstructed. Why? That is not a like that's a crazy thing to do because that means that you had to have known about their flight like the exact time and you had to go and find them and how it's kind of creepy. And then she does it anyway. It seemed a little out of character, but I guess that is the new Claire. Claire is crazy. You never know how she's going to react. <laughs> that's what's fun about her. That's what I mean. Fleabag especially is constantly surprised by her, which I think is nice because a different less complex show I think would have made her more shrewish and predictable. You don't think she's oh, shrewish? She she is a little shrewish, but I think you're right that she's shrewish and we love her. Yeah. Um I was going to add Claire also also says another great thing in that in that scene to Fleabag that the only person she'd run through an airport for is you. And I just that's the only nice thing she ever said to her, but I thought that was so sweet and encapsulates how they really feel about each other, even though they torture each other most of the time. Going back to the rom-com thing, Fleabag's affair with Hot Priest is a sort of Priest like... who may or may not be hot. No, I refuse to accept his name. His government name is Hot Priest. Thank you very much. And so basically... You have this, like, twisted rom-com with those two characters. And I really love the way that it ended because, essentially, they're both leaving the wedding a little bit early. They end up on, like, the same bus stop bench. And basically, Fleabag says, I love you, which is always supposed to be, like, you know, the big declaration of love that makes everything okay. And he just says, it'll pass. And <laughs> well, before that, though, during the ceremony itself, he gives a big speech about love. And this is just after we've seen them do the sexy push against the wall kiss uh, while Fleabag's having a cigarette, which sort of echoes the the first time that they meet at the dinner party when they both go out for a smoke. Did you understand the big speech he gave? I, I was trying to get so he starts off saying love is terrible. It, I have it in front of me. If okay. You, I can just I, read a little. I just, I didn't know exactly how to interpret it. I, I see where his mind ultimately ended up. Was he figuring it out during the speech or what were we supposed to get from that? He says love is awful. It's awful. It's painful. It's frightening. Uh, later he says it makes you creepy. 
It makes you obsessed with your hair. Another hair illusion nice. in a show that's very <laughs> obsessed with hair. Makes you cruel. Makes you say and do things you never thought you would do. Uh, and his conclusion basically is, I was taught that if we're born with love, then life is about choosing the right place to put it. People talk about that a lot, feeling right. When it feels right, it's easy, but I'm not sure that's true. It takes strength to know what's right, and love isn't something that weak people do. Yeah, this is a, a speech that kind of your interpretation of it, I think, changes once you see that he's not choosing to leave the priesthood to be with Fleabag. And in fact, he's choosing faith. Yeah, I feel like it's the, even though I think the show is coming from an atheistic point of view, um, I have to say, I really love that it's one of those very rare shows that seems to take faith seriously, um, where, like, you can sort of be jokey about it, and you can also take it seriously as, like, a way of life. And I think that for a show that's, like, so very much about, like, how sex can destabilize your existence, his decision to just sort of say like well like it is what it is like it is a destabilizer and not everyone needs it and so I'm going to choose to like not choose love in this twisted romantic comedy I thought was like really great and sort of like very satisfyingly unpredictable I interpreted that a little bit differently I thought it was less about how sex is destabilizing and more about how having found Fleabag and having felt this deep connection with her reaffirmed his decision to choose religion in a sort of that perverse contradictory way that religion kind of relies on where he found someone and he found himself going against his values. And in the end, he still came back to the same thing that he came back to the first time after what we assume was meaningless sex. So that's how I interpreted it, that. I don't think it was meaningless. Well, with Fleabag, it wasn't meaningless. Oh, right. But I'm saying the first time around, you know, he talks about oh, how he was, he implies that he had a lot of sex before yeah. he became a priest and that his new life is, he finds comfort in helping people. But the second time around, he has a sexual relationship and it is meaningful and there is love there and he still goes back to being a priest. Yeah, I I think it's ultimately right that they they don't end up together, but I'm still sort of puzzling over what I think it's supposed to mean. <laughs> well, Ingu, you said that the show's coming from a purely atheist perspective. I did not come away with that same point of view because there are key moments where Fleabag will be talking to the priest and things fall. To the point where... Whenever she says something particularly um, blasphemous, like the, a cross or something will fall to, to show God being like, I heard that. <laughs> Including when they're making out in the church. That's what really stops them, mm -hmm. we assume, from having sex right there in the church. And the priest is has definitely think believes it's an act of God based on his reaction. But Fleabag also seems, every time this happens... A little bit shaken not to the point of belief but I don't know that I took this as being a purely atheist perspective on religion I mean I get I think what I more meant is that I think it's pretty rare to like 
get a perspective like this where I think it's mostly coming from a secular perspective, but having this like, like deep respect for someone who wants to choose a faith and stick to it is I think more what I meant. Yeah, mm. I think it, it takes it seriously and it, it doesn't mock it or like kind of hold it at, at a distance. I agree. What was with the show's interest in foxes? What did that mean? <laughs> it's not foxes in general, right? It's connected to the priest specifically. He says that foxes follow him everywhere uh, and he's paranoid that there are foxes nearby. I don't know quite what to make of that. I kind of thought the implication was that Fleabag is one of the foxes who is always plaguing him. Right. Yeah. I think it's, but the actual scene where he talks about that, he's so quirky and weird about it. And it's such an odd thing that it, it does seem charming and, um, hot priest. <laughs> charming um, priest. Maybe I'm okay. She didn't say that. hot. Yeah. But, and, uh, or it's just an interesting thing. Wouldn't you be interested in a person who foxes are interested in? It was very weirdly like Manic Pixie Dream Priest. Yes. <laughs> that he's followed by foxes wherever he goes. Literal foxes. I mean, at first I was like, oh, it's a metaphor. But then at the very end, it's borne out. After he and Fleabag part ways, a fox goes by and she says he went that way and the fox goes on its way. Um, yeah, and then our flea bag decides not to wait, or the bus is canceled, so she goes off in the other direction, and that's when we see, see like, the audience experiences its final goodbye to her because she, she like, sort of signals to the camera that it, it can't come and walks off alone, and at one point she waves goodbye, so... It, I think we're meant to see that in a, a positive light. It's it's her. She's not going to disassociate and go off to this um, place anymore. She's going to be fully present in her life. So it's this profound moment of growth. But also we don't get to see more. This is why I don't want another season, is I feel to have her regress and go back to looking at the camera it, it would can be, kind of cheapen that last no, shot. No, it can be like a temporary thing, like... She's having a baby, so she goes crazy, or I don't know, and it comes back. I temporarily. don't want that. I so don't want that. It, it was just the first thing that came to my mind. No, don't I know. Worry. Okay, but <laughs> but I'm just I'm saying that I feel like we got a very. It's not even so much about closure, but that's just such an important moment of growth. That if the they were to come up with a third season, and have her go back to looking into the camera, I would feel shortchanged. I mean, I think that when you have a show with such a strong sense of closure my general tendency is also to just say leave it alone but I think with these two seasons they have been so phenomenal that if there's anyone to trust it's probably Stevie Waller-Bridge with this particular character so I'm I would give her the benefit of the doubt I would prefer to see her work on other projects such as Killing Eve and the next James Bond movie no, no, she has to be in front of the camera. She rules. <laughs> or just her voice, because I loved her in uh, Solo, A Star Wars Story. She played a droid, and she was phenomenal. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope she goes on to do other amazing things, but I, she should act, too. Um, and she should create and star in and write her own things. She just has to. 
I see 99% of the audience for solo that did not enjoy solo. You are wrong, Marissa. <laughs> I'm wrong about what? <laughs> that she was I not good not in it? more of her like voice performance for a stupidly devised character. Well, all right. We, the spoiler special for Solo has passed. So we'll leave that. <laughs> we'll leave that one alone. So I think we all like this show. It's fair to say, right? I, no, I'm just kidding. It's phenomenal. It's a really good show. Um, as much as we're divided on priest hotness, I think we can agree that Fleabag is worth watching. For sure. I I think the one thing I would say is I really liked it, but I'm a little mystified with how much everyone loved it and is raving about it. I yeah. I really liked it, but I can't – it didn't rock my world in, in the way that some people are – I think everything about it is great, but, like, I feel like I'm missing – one piece. <laughs> what about you, Ingu? I would definitely say the same thing. I saw the second season maybe about like a month ago or maybe like six weeks ago. And I was talking about it with um, other friends who had seen it early. And we all sort of, this, so this was like before sort of like the hype machine like really got into effect. And we were sort of all sitting around talking about how it was, like, very enjoyable. But, like, none of it particularly stuck with me. I think it stuck even less than, say, like, season one. And so, I don't know. Like, I thought it was super enjoyable. But I feel like it didn't, like, particularly speak to me on, like, a very profound level. And I remember telling somebody that a lot of, like, as much as I am, like, pro-hot priest, I also sort of feel like the priest stuff works for you better, maybe, like, if you are Catholic and you are sort of, like, working under, like, the structures of, like, ooh, this is the forbidden as opposed to me, a non-Catholic, who is just sort of like, yeah, I get it. Like, you're not supposed to fuck a priest, but here you are doing it. Um, and so, like, I would say, like, it doesn't get me, like, on a gut level. But those things are always, like, very subjective. So I get that, like, if it doesn't work for me, that doesn't mean it won't work for other people. I'm surprised, given the conversation we just had, that you don't think this is a profound show i think it's no, I, I so think it's open pro- to interpretation it's a profound show it, it's great but we're just saying we're not like changed and moved by it yes and i feel <laughs> like there are definitely shows that have run this year alone where i have been like wow this speaks to me like on the core level of who i am as a person and i think it's fine that this wasn't one of those shows because everyone's different yeah but I guess there's this feeling where I want it to be. I I wonder what I'm missing or something. Or I'm like, is this internalized misogyny that I find this story too small or something? It's, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's okay to feel that way. I mean, like, I don't know. The hype machine is real. I'm really, I feel like this is my conjecture. But I think with a smaller show like this, where it's really only like, you know, two hours and change. And it all appears on like one day. I think that there is a sense in, I I think that like, 
it is a sort of like feeling among a lot of certain critics who want to advocate for a show that like you have to be sort of extra loud to get people to listen. And so if people are talking about it in hyperbolic raves, I understand where people are coming from, but I don't necessarily always have to believe it. I'm glad like the hype is there. I think that if it weren't, it would just sort of disappear. But I don't know. I also take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, but watch Fleabag. <laughs> watch Fleabag and uh, please let us know at spoilers at slate.com if the priest is hot. Uh, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, including whether the priest is hot, again, send it to spoilers at slate.com. And our producer is Danielle Hewitt, and our engineer is Cameron Drews. I'm Marissa Martinelli. Thank you, Heather. Thanks, Marissa. Thanks, Ingu. You're welcome. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.